Today's review of the past week with Yaakov Katz is a doozer. We go south to north and turn Israel inside out. We start with the Gaza war, which is now entering a different phase. Then we discuss recent events on the northern front, where things have heated up significantly, likely in part due to the Israeli killing in Beirut last week of a senior Hamas official. There is deep concern in the country for what comes next up north. We then dive into the mosh pit of domestic politics and the breakdown of the false unity that we were told we must abide. Because, because we are at war. But the unity was forced, and we are now three months on. The hostages languish in the tunnels, now day 91 of their captivity. And the government does not seem overly focused on bringing them home. The divisions within Israeli society can no longer be willed away. Buckle up. We cover a lot and don't hold back. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel and now living in the amazing state of Tel Aviv. Sunday, January 7th. Good morning, Yaakov. How are you today? Hi, Vivian. Good overall. Okay. Well, let's dive in as we always do. No time to waste in the Middle East, certainly not in Israel. Uh, It's been a crazy, as always, week since we last spoke. And the media, it seems, has tilted en masse to discussing the day after, so to speak. You noticed that, I'm sure. Yes? Yes. So what I'd like to do is just kind of set the table, lay out some of the more important facts on the ground for our listeners so that we are all kind of on the same page. Right from the very beginning of this war, President Biden and Secretary Blinken said many times publicly, and I'm sure many more privately, to Prime Minister Netanyahu and his government, think this through. Before you go in on the ground to Gaza, think this through, have a plan, because you need a strategy for going in, what you intend to accomplish militarily, and then for extricating yourself or facilitating some kind of day after. And we're seeing that kind of conflict between the Americans and the Israelis flare up again. It was revealed uh, in the Israeli media during the week that particularly in November, there were some very difficult conversations between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu. And we see the Americans pushing hard for humanitarian aid to be increased and for Israel to demonstrate that There is a plan for getting out of Gaza and doing something other than what we've been doing for the last few months. And then, of course, Secretary Blinken jumping on a plane and doing one of his frantic kind of, you know, Middle East shuttles going to, I don't know, eight capitals in three days. The guy's got stamina. I'll give him that. And what that signals is he's trying to avert some sort of imminent crisis. And just for fun, I'll throw in now the work of Amos Hochstein, who is the Lebanon-Israel advisor to the administration, has been very effective. But there was an interesting article I was just reading this morning by Nadav Eyal, very good Israeli journalist, television and print. And Nadav spoke about or wrote about the fact that Hochstein is absolutely determined that he can bring about a negotiated territorial agreement between Hezbollah and Israel, or Lebanon and Israel. 
So the details of exactly who's signing and who's enforcing are unclear. And Israel doesn't have the same confidence in that outcome being at all realistic and seems to be anticipating war at some point on the Northern Front in order to ensure security for residents and the country in the Northern border. So I know that's a lot, but I want our listeners to understand this is what we do every moment of every day is try to digest <laughs> all of this and drink out of, you know, a hundred fire hoses at the same time. And now I hand that dog's breakfast over to you, Yaakov, to make sense of it all. Well, I thank you so much for that, Vivian, because <laughs> it's so easy what you've handed over. Not a lot at all. Let's just solve all of Israel's problems in a quick podcast interview. I have faith. I have faith in you. You have faith. I, I think we have to split between the two fronts, but they're also definitely connected. In the South, there's no question that Israel is scaling back its operations. We're seeing that, by the way, in a number of ways. A, the number of troops. We've pulled out some divisions, brigades, reservists. There's less going on in the north of Gaza. The focus right now is in Khan Yunus. And we saw, for example, over Shabbat on Saturday, the head of the IDF, the chief of staff, as well as the head of the Shabak, were all in Khan Yunus in tunnels together overseeing what's happening. You know, the Israeli military, they love those photos. They love to see their commanders on the ground. But that is the focal point right now. And that's because we've spoken about this before. That is where the Hamas leadership is believed to be as some of the hostages, if not maybe all of them. So the focus will be there and that will continue. What Blinken wants to see, though, is for that trajectory to continue. In other words, a continued de-escalation with the ultimate objective being this pullback to a buffer zone along the border to pinpointed in and out operations, isolated operations inside Gaza, similar to what we see in the West Bank for the last 20 years or so, but not a permanent occupation of Gaza. That's so the Americans are here to test, you know, to continue to push that idea and to make sure that Israel is continuing in that direction. Now, in the north, you see, here's the bottom line, and I, I explain this to people, and I think at the end they understand it. I met with some British members of parliament yesterday and, and spoke to them about this as well. What's happening in the North, you just have to look at it, you know, can there be a war? Can it be avoided? Can it not be avoided? Hochstein is trying to negotiate, you know, the different half a dozen or so disagreements that Israel has with Lebanon about the blue line, which is the international name for the border between Israel and Lebanon, because it's never been demarcated in a proper way since Israel pulled out in 2000. So, you know, this idea that's all it's going to take is if we can agree on the 30 or 50 meter disagreement that we have between Rosh Hanikra on our side and Nakura on the Lebanese side, I think is wishful thinking. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization bent on our destruction that any given moment as we sit here, there's 150,000 rockets that are pointed at us, at you and I, right? For the purpose of killing us and our families. That, that's what they want to do. Now we could say, okay, but maybe we can reach a deal that will push them back and they'll go north of the Litani River. We've been in this, as how do we say in Hebrew? We've been in this movie before. 2006 Second Lebanon War ended on August 14th with UN Security Council Resolution 1701, which called for the disarmament or, or, or the demilitarization of Southern Lebanon, only for us to see them grow stronger and stronger and stronger. So we could pretend that there's some diplomatic resolution here, but there isn't. There's not a diplomatic resolution to terrorist organizations. It's time for us to realize that. I think we now recognize that here in Israel. Therefore, the question comes down to when will this war happen? So is it going to happen now? Is it going to happen in the spring or the summer? Is it going to happen in five years from now? But eventually, it's probably going to happen. 
And I think that's where Israel is in its mindset, is when is it going to happen and when is it the best time for us for it to happen? There were people who thought it should happen now. There are people who think, no, we should actually wait till the spring. And, you know, I talked to Air Force pilots and IDF officers who are all who all say the same thing. They're being told springtime around Pesach, Passover, April, May, that's when things are going to get intense up north. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And I think there's no way to really predict right now. I, I hope that there's some way for the Americans to concoct some deal together with the French that would push this off. But I doubt that's really possible. And I mean, query, does Israel really want to push it off that far? Because what we hear officially in statements and communications with the public is we don't want war. We're just responding whenever Hezbollah hits us. We're in defensive mode. We're not in offensive mode. But then again, as Nadavayel writes in this piece, which I thought was very interesting, in the kind of the stealth, the cloak and dagger world, which is where the really important stuff goes on between Israel and its enemies, there have been a few, if I can use the word, hits that have great significance that have taken place in Lebanon. And those may be seen, and Israel knows this, and may be intended to be seen as provocations to force Hezbollah to hit harder. What do you think about that? First of all, I want to say, can I say just one thing? Because I've been in this business for a long time. I've written three books about that some people have accused me of being a cheerleader for the IDF in my writing. And I've always been impressed. And I think the Israeli military is one of the best in the world on many different levels. However, one of my big takeaways from October 7th personally is that we can tell ourselves stories. Oh, we took out Salah El Aruri. Look how we did it. We just struck the third floor of that building with such precision and just killed him and a couple other Hamas members. Look at what amazing intelligence we have. Look at how we're able to do amazing things in Lebanon and in Beirut. We're able to take out, you know, 150 or so Hezbollah fighters in the three months since this war and some of their arms and weapons depots in southern Lebanon and other things. It's nice to pat yourself on the shoulder or on the back once in a while, but we did that with Hamas and look at how that ended up playing itself out. We need humility. Okay. Humility is the best way. And I think that the army, when I start to see those stories, when I start mm. to see that bravado of look at how amazing we are, then I start to get concerned that we're falling back into where we were on October 6th. So just a general word of caution, let's have humility. Let's be humble. We do not know really at the end, what they're thinking on the other side. And we can tell ourselves stories, but we don't know. On the other hand, I agree that the Aruri targeted killing was impressive. The killing of the IRGC senior general in Syria earlier in December was also very impressive. We've taken out some significant Hezbollah infrastructure in that tit for tat that we have along the border with them for the last three months. But we should not live in an illusion that this is somehow we're winning some war against Hezbollah. We haven't even started the war with Hezbollah. In, in fairness to Nadav, I will say that he would agree with everything that you've just said. His point was exactly that, to raise the fact that the IDF is kind of behind the scenes engaging in some braggadocio. Some may call it lack of humility. And his every his whole piece and echoed everything you said. So let's go domestically into Israel, because part of this talk about the day after, of course, there is no such thing as anything in this country not being political. Leadership, both political and civilian, has urged us to 
be unified in this single goal to defeat Gaza, which as I say that listeners, he's smiling broadly. And when you say be unified, (laughs) I just laugh. I know, but this whole unity thing, we've just suppressed and repressed very profound anger and rage. And I am starting to think that we're the lid's about to blow off the pot for a number of reasons. And the hostages and the way in which that whole issue has been handled and not significant part of that. I've been speaking with lots of hostage families and they've stayed out of politics and they've stayed out of expressing their profound rage with respect to IDF and the government. But they say we can't any longer. We're out of time. And I think it's incredibly, I don't know, admirable that they've managed to do so up until now. But last week, we had a really ugly spectacle that took place on Thursday night and Friday in Jerusalem with the government in meetings with the IDF chief of staff. And what I'd like you to do is just kind of sketch out what happened and how serious it is. And then, of course, if you would just take that to Saturday night when Prime Minister Netanyahu yet again came on TV to tell us how everything was great, Mr. Security was going to take care of everything, and we should be unified, and how that went down. So take it away, Yaakov. Well, I mean, you know, the <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to laugh, but it's just, it's I, I totally agree with what you said before. There's a deep-seated division, and unfortunately still fisser within Israeli society, that the war might have covered up like a good touch-up for makeup, but it's still there. And if we presume as if it's gone, we're fooling ourselves. I want to just jump in here very quickly because this is very controversial, but I think it's very real. I personally think that the fissure, the chasm, whatever you want to call it, has become more pronounced, deeper, wider, more serious, because you can't airbrush over, plaster the cracks, whatever metaphor you want to use. I also believe, and this is based on direct interactions I've had with many people and a lovely Shabbat dinner I had on Friday night with some great religious Zionist friends and their friends. The hostage issue is not seen by many in Israel as being their issue in the same way. And that's a very touchy subject that no one has talked about publicly, but we know to be true because who are the hostages? There is not a single religious hostage in Gaza. They are all considered to be lefties. Well, there are, there's a couple of soldiers, I think, okay. that are religious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so soldiers are, but in terms of yeah. the people who are attending this decadent, you know. Music, For sure. Right? So any everyone at the music festival, all of the people living on Kibbutzim that were attacked are constantly derided by this government and many other Israelis as being lefties And maybe now they'll kind of understand how wrong they were in their ways. And I think that's something we need to start talking about. Because what I got on Friday night was hostages. Like, yeah, but it just was not looming so largely for them the way I know it is in central Israel and in the state of Tel Aviv. By the way, Vivian, the prime minister wrote this op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, what the goals are for Israel in this war and did not mention the hostages, right? So that if you're looking for any indication of the separate interests or difference between what agendas different people have in this war, you saw it front, right and center, you know, whatever it is right there by the prime minister yeah. who did not mention 
the hostages themselves. I think that really we're heading into, with the de-escalation and with the change in this phase of the war, that's already happening. This is also going to be the spring of politics in Israel to an extent as we enter into, you know, in a couple of months into the new season. And it'll be very interesting to see because this prime minister obviously is not going anywhere if it's up to him. There, there are rumblings in the Likud party. There are rumblings within the religious Zionist movement, like the people who you had dinner with, I'm sure, of what type of leadership they want to see. And you, you're starting to see that political posturing taking place also in the security cabinet, right? You had ministers who were slamming and attacking the chief of staff. Let's right? remember, IDF chief of staff, Herzliya Levy, what happened was he announced the establishment of an investigative team internally within the IDF, as is always done after every big mistake, big war, big operation. You take former IDF generals and you appoint them to lead an internal investigation. In this case, there was Shul Mofaz, a former chief of staff. There were there was Sami Turjaman, a former head of Southern Command, Aaron Zevi Farkash, a former head of military intelligence. These are serious people, but they're looking internally at the IDF. And the IDF, one of its ethos or one of its main principles always has been this thorough and sturdy investigative arm that it has. It always investigates itself as it should. Unlike, by the way, the government, the IDF does do this, right? And learns to be better, right? We, we should want our military to be better. What did these guys go ahead and do? Miri Regev, Bitsal from the Likud, Bitsal Smutrich, Itmar Ben-Gvir, and David Dudiam Salem, really people who I despise, right? I'm sorry. But what they did was start to attack him. How dare you start to do this? You're already, you know, we're in the middle of a war. How can you investigate? Now, by the way, I mean, again, it's an internal investigation. It's not a national investigation. It's not a state commission of an inquiry. This, they're not looking at the political echelon. They're looking internally at the IDF. Why didn't we have intelligence? Why was our rapid, why was our deployments of troops wrong? What was wrong with our defenses? We need to know this because as we phase out of this war, how are we going to make sure we have intelligence next time? How are we going to make sure our defenses work next time? How are we going to make sure as an example, you know, it, it, talk to Air Force pilots, right? One of the big questions, and with this, I'll just stop, but the big question was, how come on October 7th, they breached the border? Why were there not two Apache helicopters with those cannons on their fuselage on the bottom, just standing, like hovering above and mowing down anyone who tried to cross in? Because they, the, the Air Force does not know how to operate in, in a fog of this kind, right? They know how to get orders. They know how to coordinate with troops on the ground, but not like this. They didn't have coordination. So they need to learn. They need to draw their lessons. There's so much that we need to do better. And, and that's why it's imperative now, but everything is becoming political, Vivian. And you and I know that. Right. So, and that, that's what's happening. So I want to get to the fog because I think it's important to inform our listeners also about the UVDA program that ran on Thursday night and what came up, some of the things that came up in that. But sticking with the cabinet meeting on Friday, in which those four people you mentioned who you despise, basically went at the IDF chief of staff, Hertzi Halevi, who was attending the meeting and reporting to the cabinet like a pack of attack dogs. And Prime Minister sat back, as we know he does, and, you know, just kind of lets it happen. Really, Prime Minister Netanyahu, if you are acting in the best interests of the state, are you going to set up a confrontation like that to humiliate your IDF chief of staff and you your Minister of Defense? So yes, you know, you so you explain Netanyahu's modus operandi. He is willing to do that now because for him, this is a fight for survival. And there's nothing better than the spotlight of failure being on the IDF 
as opposed to on himself. And that is what this is about. Everyone is positioning themselves. There's not just the day after the war in terms of who's going to rule Gaza. There's the day after the war, who's going to rule Israel. And that's the conversation that's taking place in the security cabinet. That's why the, these comments get leaked out. People, they want our attention to be on the IDF failure, not on the political failure, not on the fact that, yes, it was Netanyahu who released Sinwar from jail. It was Netanyahu who in, orchestrated $30 million of cash every month to Hamas. It was Netanyahu who knew what was happening on the other side and preferred to contain it. They don't want us to say those things. They want us to say, Hertzi, you messed up. Where were you? How did you fail? That's what they want us to do. Now, everybody's responsible in my view, but they want to try to divert the attention away from, from the political echelon to just be on the military people. Fog of war. And where were those Apache helicopters? And where were so many of our military forces on October 7th? I'm sure you've seen Ilana Dayan um, on UVDA last Thursday. Again, listeners, UVDA, which means fact in English, is hosted by Ilana Dayan, an extraordinarily good journalist. It's kind of the 60 Minutes of Israel. And the segment looked at various documents that we've known of now for a few weeks that lay out in great detail Hamas plans. The upper echelons of military and one presumes political leadership were aware of these plans for over a year and chose to dismiss and discredit them as you know, kind of hallucinations, fantasies, and uh, Hamas, of course, did not have the capability. And as we now know, what was executed on October 7th is absolutely to a T what was detailed in, I believe it was a 27-page document in Hebrew, which means it'd be a lot longer in English. But among the details that we know also from Uvda is that the few heroes who went into that war zone, so there were rogue former generals in their 60s, like Noam Tibon and a few yeah. of his buddies and who saved many people, including his son's family. There were the United Hatzalah people who were there just to save and not to fight. And there were some Shabak Shin Bet officers who were told, if you have weapons, go down. There was this kind of ragtag response. A few people from various army brigades, but not prepared for war. They went in, as one person said, didn't even have his night vision goggles. They went in with a few rounds and some light ammunition and weapons. Nothing serious to repel a serious attack. And the other thing that we learned is that any communication they had with respect to where they should go, what they should do, what they might encounter, was on these informal WhatsApp groups. Yeah, There were no communications from military command. And that includes the Air Force. Exactly. Look. What Hamas did, beyond surprising us, beyond not having intelligence, was the way they broke in and went to those frontline outposts and attacked even the division headquarters, got the division commander into his command center and blinded and not knowing what was happening outside and then blinding also the higher echelons of the IDF in Tel Aviv who couldn't com communicate with him. No one knew what was happening, created this fog. And what it ended up doing was that just random people like Noam T-Bone and others grabbed their gun, went down and tried to fight. But then they would come into a kibbutz and they'd see they thought there were five Hamas guys. There were 100 or 200. We were unprepared for all of that. And the, the I think the big lesson here beyond, you know, what do we do next time? God forbid there's this type of fog or how do we keep the chain of command intact? 
what we learned from having, we had all the intelligence. We knew everything that Hamas was doing. We saw their preparations. We saw them train how to storm an IDF outpost. But we told ourselves a story that it wasn't real. It wasn't, they weren't really going to do it. It was just for show. It was bravado. It was to flex some muscle. It was to vent. We, and we believed in that fairy tale. We have to stop telling ourselves stories and fairy tales. We have to start believing in what we're seeing. And that's why I say, in going back to what we opened with in the North, this applies to the North also. We shouldn't believe that this is a different reality. This is the same story and the same illusion that we could fall into. And that we have to be careful not to let happen. So what's your uh, parting comment? What are we doing well? Look, we're doing well. I think we are achieving what we want to achieve on the South. We're pushing forward. It's going to take time. This isn't a war that you can end quickly. There's no clear definition of victory. We have to find a way to eliminate the Hamas leadership. We have to find a way to get back the hostages. But this takes time and we need patience. And, and in today's world, we don't have that patience. But I think that if we can continue to operate in Khan Yunus, hopefully achieve more of those goals, bring down the Hamas leadership. And I think we're on the path. We're not yet there. If I look at a scale of one to 10, we're maybe five, six. We got a way to go. And I know that that hurts when you think about 90 days and plus into this war, but this is going to take time. Yaakov, as always, pleasure and so interesting to talk to you. Have a good week. Thank you, Vivian. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.